this evening to Psalm 103, this wonderful psalm of David in a wonderful book of psalms. There are two things that are specially notable about this psalm. One is that it is a psalm principally of thanksgiving and praise. Many of the psalms are written in times of great distress where the psalmist comes to the Lord and cries out for help, for relief, for the intervention of God to put down his enemies, to deliver him from the oppression that he's facing, or a psalm that records the anguish of soul over sin, and these many, many experiences that the psalmist goes through which are a mirror image of the expression of the experiences that we all go through, the ups and the downs of Christian life. So in this psalm, there are no complaints, so to speak, of trials or of the activity and the oppression of the enemy. There's no confession of sin and guilt. There are no petitions that the psalmist brings to God. So that's one remarkable thing. It's not the only psalm where that's the case, but it's um, a rare thing, comparatively speaking. So that's what we find first that distinguishes this psalm. The second distinguishing feature is particularly found in the opening five verses where the psalmist addresses his own soul. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. David here is reflecting on the blessings that he possesses by the grace of God. And he seems to be stirring up his own soul to praise God. Now, there is such a thing that we refer to as self-medication. You've heard that term. Where you don't go to the doctor, you might go to the, the pharmacy and you um, explain what the trouble is and, uh, and you're given some over-the-counter medication or drug and you go home and you medicate yourself with that particular kind of uh, treatment, self-medication. This, in a sense, it strikes me, the opening verses, is a kind of spiritual self-medication. You know how it is with us at times. We feel downcast and discouraged, feeling sorry for ourselves because of the way that life is turning out. Things aren't going as they ought to do, and we wish things were very different. And yet, we won't let ourselves get away with it. We say to ourselves, now come on, you're a Christian. You have a great God. You have a wonderful Savior. You have a multitude of blessings to be thankful for. Now come on, bless the Lord, O my soul. And we need that from time to time, don't we? Perhaps no one realizes our feelings and our state of mind and heart. And yet we do. And if we're in any kind of right state of mind and heart, 
we will look at ourselves and say, is this how we ought to be? Should we be full of doubts and fears and misgivings about God and his dealings with us? Is it right that we should be full of complaints and woe and we should be feeling sorry for ourselves and locking ourselves away until that time comes when all our troubles disappear like the morning dew? Is that how we should be? No, we've got much to thank the Lord for, much benefits to be grateful for. And that's what's happening, it seems to me here, with this psalmist. Now, again, this is not the only ex uh, example of where the psalmist ministers to himself. I'll give you um, three examples. Elsewhere in the book of Psalms, Psalm 42 and verse 5. Why art thou cast down, O my soul? And why art thou disquieted in me? In other words, why are you like this? As though there's no hope and there's no, there's no relief and there's no answer. And he says to himself, Hope thou in God, for I shall yet praise him for the health of his countenance. Hope in God. Expect something from God. For the time will come when I won't be moping because of the way that things are. I will be full of praise. That day will come and I can expect the Lord to be gracious. Or Psalm 62 and verse 5. My soul, there we are again. He's speaking to himself. He's ministering to himself. My soul, wait thou only upon God for my expectation is from him. People can be of help. And there are ways in which we can help ourselves. But finally, our expectation is from God. Because God can do for us what none else can do. He can reach down into our souls and minister to us in a way that none else can. So, my soul, wait thou only upon him. For my expectation is from him. And then Psalm 116 there's the psalmist after being delivered from a time and an experience of much affliction. And he says, Return unto thy rest, O my soul, for the Lord hath dealt bountifully with thee. In that time of affliction, he would have been very agitated and worked up, and he wouldn't have known what rest is. And we're like that, aren't we? Things happen to us. We pass through trials and tribulations and we can't sleep properly at night and we can't get our minds off the thing that is, um, is before us. And it's a great trouble to us. But then the Lord brings us through and the Lord restores us and helps us. And then we must say to ourselves, it's over. God has been gracious. Return unto thy rest. O oh my soul, for the Lord hath dealt bountifully with thee. So this is, if you like, a treatment of a soul that is in spiritual need. A soul that is cast down and under great pressure. Or a soul that is lethargic and dull. We know that experience, don't we? We don't have the same spiritual life in us or energy or desire that we know we should have. 
so we come and we speak for ourselves. Now, come on, this isn't right. Remember the goodness of the Lord. Or it could apply equally when we are in a better spiritual frame and when we are aware of the greatness of God and the goodness of the Lord toward us through the days of our lives. And yet strangely, and at times like that, I think it's true of us, that we begin to feel that no matter how much praise I might bring to God, it's never enough. It's never enough. So come on, my soul. Bless the Lord. So that's the way that we can think about these opening verses in particular. Bless the Lord, O my soul. This word bless is used in two ways, or at least from two different perspectives. We think of God blessing us, and that refers, of course, to the demonstration and the gift of God's favor and kindness toward us, the blessings that he bestows upon us through the days of our lives. But this is when we bless the Lord, and that's a meaning where we adore him in worship and praise for what he is, for what he is to us, and for what he has done for us and to us, for the blessings that we have received from him. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Now, when David summons himself to bless God, to adore God, to praise God, he won't be content with just words and a passing reference to the goodness of the Lord. He's summoning up his whole person to be engaged in the worship of God. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. And that's an exhortation we need to bring to ourselves, isn't it? The Lord's Day morning comes, and off we go to the house of God. And it's another Lord's Day. Just another Lord's Day. Is it? Is that all it is? Now, we should never think like that. Hasn't Christ promised to be in the midst of his people? Don't we come primarily to meet with him? Don't we come to expect him to fulfill his promise? I will be there. Friends, when we come on the Lord's Day into the house of God, meeting with the people of God, we meet with him. And how can it be that we should be content to come with a half-hearted kind of attitude, with a sort of perfunctory, mechanical approach to the worship of God. He's worthy to be praised. He deigns to meet with us. And how can we come to him full of the things of the world, full of ourselves, full of our complaints and all of our woes and all the rest of it? We come to meet with him. Now, come on, my whole being, let me be engaged in the true worship of God. The mind is engaged. The heart is engaged. The will is engaged and stirred up. Stirred up. And also the memory. The memory is another faculty of the soul. 
Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Now that is an exhortation to the psalmist's soul to recall, to bring back to the memory the benefits and the mercies and the blessings that he has known from the Lord in the days of his life. Forget not. We're also forgetful, aren't we? We pray for things and God grants it to us and, and off we go. And we forget all about it. We're rather like the benign lepers, aren't we? They wouldn't come back to thank Christ for his healing kitchen. And we wondered. And we need to remember what God has done. And the more that we remember, call to our minds, it means, recollect the blessings of God, the more our hearts will be stirred up to thank him, to praise him, and also to trust him. If he was like that then, he will for sure be like that for the whole of our lives. He's a faithful God. He doesn't change. Or we can be so unthoughtful, thought memories of the goodness of the Lord. Forget not all his benefits. Well, what are they? This whole psalm, really, is full of them. We don't have the time, of course, to go through all of them, but I do want to um, at least mention five of them that we have in these five verses that uh, begin the psalm here from verse 3 down to verse 5. What's the first benefit, the first blessing that a Christian can be thankful for? It's this. He forgiveth all thine iniquities. That's the first and the greatest of all blessings. Iniquity. It's a word that refers to the twisting or the distortion or the perverting of the soul and of the life. We're not what we're meant to be. We can take some wonderful object and if it's bendable, you can twist it and, and make it into something that looks very different from what it's meant to be. And that's what sin does to us. And the word also carries the idea of deliberate, willful sin. We know what we're doing, and yet we do it anyway. And yet, here is this great and, and glorious God who knows all our iniquities, and yet through Christ forgiveth all thine iniquities. What a thing that is. Forgiveth all thine iniquities. This is pardon, full pardon. And the Old Testament has got some wonderful illustrations of the depth and the extent and the finalities of God's forgiveness. You can find one of these illustrations in this very psalm. Look at verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Now, where we are here in England, we can look toward the east and toward 
um, Asia and northern Russia, that and we think, well, that's the east. And we travel over to Thailand or wherever it may be, and we think we've arrived at the east. But you see, when we're in the east, when we're in Thailand, we're not in the east anymore, are we? It's still further over. You never get to the east in other words. And when you travel to the west, if you cross the Atlantic and went to North America, you would say, I'm now in the west. No, I'm not, because there's another west that's further away. And as far as the east, you never arrive there. And the west, and you never arrive there either. That's how far our transgressions are removed from us. Infinitely. They're gone. And all through the Lord Jesus Christ, they were laid upon him. And he suffered and he died that we might know this forgiveness. There are wonderful illustrations elsewhere in the Old Testament, as I mentioned. Isaiah 38, Thou hast cast all my sins behind thy back. What is that supposed to suggest to us? That God will never look upon them again. They're out of his view. Or Micah 7.19, Thou wilt cast all their sins into the depth of the sea. That's what we do with stuff that we're done with. We don't want to see it anymore. And it goes into the sea and we can never see it again. Or Jeremiah 31, 34, where the Lord says, I will remember their sin no more. No more. That's forgiveness. That's forgiveness. All kinds of forgiveness. All of them. Recent iniquities, secret iniquities, open iniquities, the iniquities that we feel in our conscience that evoke that sense of shame and disgrace. Those things that belong way back in the history of our lives that have that way of re-emerging and troubling us. God has forgiven all whatever they may be, heinous sins and breakings of the law of God. You see, if he didn't, if he forgave some of them, that would be of little use to us because sin cannot enter into heaven. One sin is enough to condemn us and the Lord's grace has purposed that we shall not be condemned that all of us is forgiven. I don't know about you, but I feel such grace, such infinite set of sins, all loaded upon Christ, and he dealt with it. And it belongs to us nonetheless. Forgiven. That's continuous present tense. Just as we continue to sin, we're not perfect. We won't be in this life. And we're always falling. We're always slipping. We're always falling short. But when we come unto God and confess our sins, He is always ready to forgive us afresh. 
and that's a comfort to us. It doesn't give us that license to sin and fall. The love and the grace of God rather spurs us on to greater holiness. But we know that we shall fail and we shall fall. But God is ever gracious to forgive all of our iniquities. You know, the disciples came to Jesus once, you remember, and said, how often should I forgive the brother that offends me? Seven times? And Jesus said, no, 70 times seven. In other words, you go on and you go on and you go on. And the Lord does not ask us to do what he did not do himself. Always ready to forgive. A forgiving God. Forget not all his benefits. This forgiveness of our iniquities, of our sins, of our transgressions, is the greatest thing of all. Because what it does is to open up the door to the rest. So long as sin is there, no blessings can come to us. But sin is taken out of the way. The storehouse of heaven is open to us. And so we go on also in this opening part of the psalm. And in verse 3 and at the end. Who healeth all thy diseases. Now there are some of course that will latch hold to upon that verse and say well all of our diseases, all of our illnesses, they should be healed. And uh, if we, they're not healed, then it's some fault with our faith. That God doesn't mean us to be ill. And if we are, it's our own fault in some way or another. That we should all be healed. And there are those that claim to be healers. Like the apostles. Well, that, that belonged to the days of the apostles. It doesn't belong to our day. We don't deny, of course, that God can heal and does heal, most usually through the use of medical intervention, that he can and sometimes does heal outside of that. But what's in view here is not the healing of the body, who healeth all thy diseases. That's going to come, but it's not going to come in this life. It's going to come in the next life when all the diseases of the body will be gone forever. We shall be raised up from the dead and our bodies will never be corrupted again. They will never, they will never lose their, their, their youth, their power, their, their vigor. The, the body will be glorified at the resurrection. But that's then. Who healeth all thy diseases is referring to now and what we're thinking about here and what is meant here is that spiritual disease of the soul. That's what the Lord cures in this life. For example, he cures our unbelief. That's what he's done for a Christian. There we were, no faith, rebellion against God, but he dealt with that and he put us right. He cures us of our love of sin. We fall into sin, but we don't love it. We hate it. And he's dealt with us and healed us of that disease. There's the disease of worldly appetites. And he's put us right with that. Instead, we have a, an appetite and a hunger for the Lord and for his word and for his presence. He's healed our faulty consciences. The conscience of a worldly person doesn't operate properly. It's not informed. It's, it's fashioned after the 
opinions and the, the ways of the world. But he heals the conscience, and the conscience of a Christian is far more tender than a worldly person's is. We shudder at what we've done. We are brought to turn back from the temptation that is before us. He heals our consciences then. And he heals a broken heart. You know what a broken heart may be? The grief that we feel, the pain, the sorrow of it all. But the Lord has a way, doesn't he? Of healing that. He brings us the balm of Gilead. The sense that all must be well. For God is our God. He heals us in our fear of death, even to the extent of wishing to be with Christ in heaven. He healeth all thy diseases. Thirdly, he redeemeth thy life from destruction. Buys back that life, ransoms that life from destruction. Perhaps this is our experience that God has delivered us from death when we have been in mortal danger. Perhaps we were aware of it, perhaps we weren't. I can think back to two or three times in my life when um, I don't want to be over dramatic here and over romantic as it were, but but uh, as, as I look back, I, I think I could have died. Once in a football crowd, once in a car, once in an aeroplane. But he redeemeth our life from destruction. We are here for so ever how long, for howsoever long, the Lord would have us to be here. But there's another sense, I think, that is included in this statement. He redeemeth thy life destruction in our sinful state we would be so prone to destroying the life that we live in terms of its value and of its purpose we look at people in the world today and we look at the wreckage of their lives people that get into drugs or into crime, people in broken marriages and all sorts of awful things that we're so familiar with. We listen to the news and we just look at society and we think that's a life that's gone to rack and ruin. And yet, for the people of God, he redeems us from that. He gives us a life to live that, albeit faltering and incomplete, is a holy life and a godly life and a purposeful life. A life that is employed by the Lord for good, for lasting good, for his glory. A life that's lived as an advertisement, so to speak, of the goodness of the Lord. 
a life that's employed in the service of God in the local church, these kinds of things. It could be so different. We might sit here this evening and we may well say to ourselves, where would I be? What would I be were it not for the intervention of God? Dreadful thing. Dreadful thing that he's redeemed our lives from that ruin and destruction that could so easily have been our experience. He redeems it for himself. There is no greater life to live than a holy life led by God and enabled by his spirit. A life worth living in this world that leads to everlasting life in the world to come. Fourthly, another benefit, who crowneth thee with loving kindness and tender mercies. Now the idea of a crown suggests at least two things. First of all, honor and status and privilege and entitlement. When Charles was crowned king, the crown was put upon his head, and that's, as it were, a statement that this is the king of the United Kingdom of Scotland. That's his position. And the Lord, as it were, puts a crown upon our heads that denotes our sonship, that we belong to him, that we have been raised to a status and to positions that we never had until we were brought to saving faith. We were worldly. We had no place in the kingdom of God. We weren't children of God. We were children of Satan. That's the teaching of Christ in the gospel. But he has saved us and he brings us to himself. And it's as though he would say to us now, I want you to understand what you now are, what position you now enjoy, what privileges are now yours because I have granted them to you. And he puts a crown upon our heads. And we're his. We have this wonderful, unique, special relationship to him. Sons and daughters of the living God, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. But the other idea of a crown is adornment. As it were, a decoration. Uh, um, we, we have the term, don't we, the crowning glory. Um, that someone has um, got these particular um, advantages and has been decorated, so to speak, by, by the state for, for, for what he or she has done. And, and, and yet there's the crowning glory is this. The best of all is this. And that, I believe, is, is included in this term, who crowneth thee with loving kindness and tender mercies. We have been pardoned, forgiven. Our diseases have been healed 
our lives have been redeemed from destruction and now we have been crowned with loving kindness and tender mercies. It's the way the Lord deals with us. Not roughly, not harshly, not as those who are to receive what we really deserve, but he comes to us with loving kindness and tender mercies over and over and over again. It's a picture of a shepherd who picks up his lamb and carries that lamb, clasping that lamb to his breast. It's a picture of that, that father that loves his child and will do anything for that child that is for that child's good. And that's the dealings of the Lord with us. Yes, forgiven. Yes, healed. Yes, redeemed from destruction. Oh, but there's more. And the whole of our lives are an experience of the loving kindness and the tender mercies of the Lord. And I'll leave you to work that one out. To think back over the course of your life and just to realize afresh how kind he's been, how merciful he's been, how that you have deserved one thing, but he has given you another. All of those spiritual graces that he's imparted to us, all those blessings that visibly adorn the child of God. And then fifthly, to satisfy thy mouth with good things. He makes our souls to be hungry for the things of God and then he feeds us and he satisfies us. And it's our daily prayer, at least it should be, feed me, Lord, with heavenly manna. Nourish me in the things of God. And for those spiritual blessings that we hunger for, we find that God has a way of supplying us with them and he satisfies us. Do we want the assurance of sins forgiven? Some people struggle with assurance. But do we want to be reassured when God has a way of providing us with that? If only we will believe him and trust in him, he will take us afresh to the cross of Calvary. You want to be assured? Well, look at the cross. Look at Christ there. Who was he dying for? He was dying for you. He shed his blood for you. And will you doubt me? Will you doubt my promises? Will you doubt the work of Christ upon that cross? He grants us that desire of our hearts and he satisfies our mouth with a good thing like that. Do we hunger for special grace in times of need? Do we hunger for that visitation of God in dark times, difficult times, trying times, overwhelming times. And we come to the Lord and pray that he will supply us with the grace that we need. And he will take us to the promises that are recorded for us in his word. And he will say, well, remember what I said. Remember what I said I would undertake. Remember what I have promised to you. And I will do these things. And we're satisfied. 
We want to be guided. We desire that. We hunger for that. We want to do the right thing. We want to make the right decisions. We want to follow the right course. And if we're really sincere in wanting to know what God's will is, he will come to us and say, this is the way. Walk ye in it. He satisfies thy mouth with good things. And those good things and other good things besides, according to this verse, have an effect. And of course, they do have an effect. He satisfies thy mouth with good things so that thy youth is renewed like the eagle. Now, the eagle is said to regularly, I think annually in some cases, renew its feathers. You may know more about these things than I do. But that's what they say. And because that's what happens, so the, the eagle appears to be perennially young and strong and fresh. Perhaps we'd like to be that. But I don't think that uh, this verse is saying that we're going to be perpetually rejuvenated. That's not our experience, is it? Many of us here this evening will readily understand what I mean by that. We're fading, aren't we? We're weakening. And our strength is not being renewed. We just about keep going, it feels. But the good things of God put new life into our souls. He ministers good things to us so that we are able to go forward into Christian life with a new vigor, a new faith, a new confidence, a new trust in our God, and a new sense that he ever and really will be with us all the days of our lives. I borrow this from a friend who pointed it out in the devotional message some time ago. But do you remember the time when Jacob had had all that trouble with Esau and that he'd been in the wilderness and he'd had this wonderful vision of the, the ladder that went from earth to heaven and angels going up and down. That ladder, of course, was a representation of Christ. And uh, he was in the presence of God and he didn't realize it, but God was with him. And in the beginning of the next chapter, chapter 29, in the, in the version that we have, we read that Jacob went on his journey. That seems very sort of ordinary, doesn't it? He got up in the morning and he carried on with his journey. But the Hebrew has a different emphasis than that. And one of the old commentators, a man called John Trapp, puts it like this. He went with a spring in his step. In other words, he went with a new energy and a new confidence and a new joy as he made his way forward in his journey. Why? Because God had visited him. He had seen something of God. He had been satisfied 
with good things. And that's the meaning of this. And when God satisfies us, we can look down, we can do anything. We will suffer anything. We will do anything that God calls us to do. Why? Because we're satisfied with Him. He means more to us than ever before. He's proved Himself to us all over again. And so life, though it may seem at times to be dreary and wearisome and burdensome, so be it. My God has satisfied me with good things and I know that ultimately I shall go to be with Him forevermore. For we are done for. Remember or forget not all has done for us. Benefit, because we use that word nowadays, doesn't seem to be strong enough, does it, for these things? A benefit? What do you call it? Do you call it a blessing? Is, is that enough? I don't know what you did, would, would call it. I don't know the language that is sufficient to describe such things. The wonderful mercies of God, the wonderful grace of God that brings us one thing after another after another is all because of matchless undeserved grace and all because Christ has died for us and risen again from the dead all because ultimately the triune God has set his love upon us even before the world was with that determination to do all things for our good and that ultimately we shall be with him and we shall be like him. Blessed Lord, O my soul, may we be enabled to do that. May we remember things like this and remember what we have in our God through Jesus Christ and bless him with all that he gives us. with the hymn 496 496 how vast the benefits divine which we in Christ possess we are redeemed from sin and shame and called to holiness 496 
ourselves we dare not take or of thee of thy crown thou wast thyself our surety in god's redemption plan in thee his grace was given us long ever the world began safe in the arms of sovereign love <laughs> shall remain nor shall the rage of earth or hell him he will shall so vain not one of all the chosen race that shall to have attain here they will share a bounding grace and there with jesus Oh Lord, forgive us that so often our hearts are cold and we are so absorbed with ourselves and we forget what God has done for us, what God is to us. Oh, may we be reminded constantly that thou art so full of grace and we owe all things to thee. And may we learn then to rejoice in our gracious God, and to show forth thy praise all the days of our lives. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.